0: Everybody gets a piece, we're going mainstream! a guest who's bringing farmland investing to the masses after working for one of canada's largest pension plans ontario teachers and running operations and as the cfo at a platform for buying and selling produce artem Millenchuk founded farm together to bring an asset that has largely been the domain of institutional investors to individuals farm together is a technology-enabled farmland investment platform that provides investors with direct access to u.s farmland as an asset class They've developed an end-to-end investment platform that allows investors to review carefully vetted farmland investments and invest into properties. Artem has over 10 years of finance experience in food, agriculture, and farmland. Prior to founding Farm Together, Artem was the first employee and CFO and VP of Operations at Full Harvest Technology, a post-Series A B2B platform for buying and selling produce. He previously worked at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, Sprout Resource Holdings, e and PwC. Artem and I had a fascinating conversation about how farmland deserves a place in all investors portfolios in large part due to its features as a hedge against inflation and as a passive income generating investment. He also made a great case for how we can eat our way into supporting farmland investments like hazelnut farms, which happens to be some of the types of farms that Artem likes to invest into in large part because he likes hazelnuts. Thanks Artem for coming on the Alco's mainstream podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Artem. Artem, welcome to the Allco's Mainstream Podcast.
1: Thank you, Michael. Good to be here.
0: How's everything going?
1: It's great. Yes, yeah, it the you know. sun is coming out. Hopefully, we are starting to take control of this pandemic. So, twenty twenty one is looking brighter and brighter by the day.
0: Well, su- sun is probably good for farms as well. So, for Indeed. for all the crop yields. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well that 's great we 're going to have a lot to talk about with uh with, with everything you 're doing at farm together and in, and, and in farmland as NASA class, but first, I want to start with your your background. You have a fascinating story uh all the way from when you grew up to how you got to to, to into farmland investing and and how your early life shaped you so'd we love for you to start there
1: yeah absolutely so you know I was born in Soviet Union raised in Russia, and I like to say that uh, you know the west. Won the Cold War not with nukes, but with shelves brimming with food. <laughs> um, and that's kind of a bit of my experience uh, growing up is that um, everyone in Russia would get like a little patch of land that they would work. And that's, you know, you grew your potatoes, you had your chickens, your herbs. Uh, and it's really especially, uh, you know, when kind of the world came down, the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a couple of years that were like really tough. And so we survived in like the potatoes that my grandparents grew as a patch of land. So that just gave me like a really healthy appreciation for both the food and the land, something that is, you know, timeless and most critical to our very civilization.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Was that, do you think that's like looking back why and how you've ended up so interested in
1: farmland? It's that and, you know, a bit of luck. Uh, When I started my career in finance in 2004, I was immediately put on a file, which was a uh, chocolate factory being sold to Nestle. And so I had a very sweet entry into the food market and, you know, uh, a a really fun experience. And from there, you kind of, you know, they then they put you into more sort of food and ag and farmland files. And so, you know, I kind of ended up being there by, by luck, but then it was like a very nice thing that I kept at it. And so my finance career, which spent about 10 years, has always been focused on food, agriculture and farmland.
0: Yeah, well, and you worked for a, a large institutional investor investing into farmland and agriculture assets, right, at, at Ontario Teachers.
1: Ontario Teachers is a, now a $200 billion pension fund. They are extremely sophisticated, very, have tremendous track record, and set the example not just for pension funds, but investing in general. Um, so at the time, uh, I wasn't yet investing in farmland on behalf of Ontario Teachers. I did on behalf of other uh, organizations. Now, Ontario teachers has a fairly robust farm and practice, but I was investing in ag companies, I was investing in food companies, and so I had a, a very global and you know, horizontal vertical view of a lot of industries uh, connected to how we grow and sell our food, and that gave me a, a really beautiful three sixty view, not just of the overall food and ag industry, but also the capital markets, how they view that industry.
0: Well, and then you also worked as an operator in a in a company that connected large farms with food and beverage companies to help them sell surplus food, right? So it sounds like you actually kind of got your your hands dirty, I guess pun intended, for with <laughs> with farms and understanding how they operate how they produce, and what that means as, as, as an asset as well?
1: When I take a look outside at Farm Together and myself as an investor, and I, I think about you know the founder market fit, not to pat myself on the shoulder, but uh, I am very lucky to have this unique Venn diagram of experience in the capital markets, in the act space, and as an operator for a B2B marketplace in the farmland space. So yes, yeah, so there was a company called Full Harvest, which has a tremendous mission of food waste. And I was, um, worked there for about a year as first employee and the right-hand man to, to the founder and really cut my chops, that's the saying, on actually getting my hands dirty. There.
0: In terms of investing in farmland, do you think you need all of those different backgrounds in order to fully understand how to think about farmland, not just as an investable asset, but also in terms of the, the business of how a farm works, produces assets, the crop yields, etc. It's itself?
1: I don't want to be a gatekeeper here, but it helps. Yes, if if really I think uh, you know what gives me the kind of the confidence and the the knowledge to do this is all that mix of experiences. But on the other hand, uh, you know, farmland can be very complicated. It can also be very simple, which is not to say easy. But at the end of the day, it's like how much stuff will this patch of land grow? And what will this stuff sell for? And how much will it cost me to grow this stuff? So it's kind of like a real estate product. And so from that aspect, you know, we try to make it very easy for investors to understand the key risks of every investment.
0: Well, we'll get to that in a little bit because I do want to talk about investor education, which I think across all of these different alt platforms is so important and, and making yep. investors... Uh, be able to understand the different merits of the asset and why it may fit into their portfolio, I think is so, so important for this space. So definitely want to get to that. But before we do, I, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about Farm Together. So how did you decide to found Farm Together? What was that? What was that founding moment? And then what what is the business become today?
1: You know, the founding moment was very classic moment of solving a problem for yourself. And in this case, the myself was both a Personal investor where I wanted to invest in farmland and just saw very few options. It was a uh, advisor to friends who um, were, became our first angels. Uh, this time uh, they were the co-founders of Grammarly. You know Grammarly was starting to do well, uh, and they wanted to diversify from tech where their career and investments were to something completely opposite of tech. And so they said like, "Hey, I know you know." You know, things about farmland, how can I invest? And so I started looking for solutions for them and also couldn't find anything really, like, compelling. And lastly, as a professional investor, looking on behalf of a large institution, Ontario teachers, and then extrapolating that to every institution in the world, I also couldn't see uh, ways for them to invest in farmland for different reasons. And so I was like, wow, there's this huge asset class. They're attractive. You know, we can talk about why. And yet there's so few options to invest in this. And, you know, crypto starting to blow up at the time. I was like, people are willing to throw money at like a coin that has this tremendously complicated protocol, and yet farmland is this crazy, exotic thing. So I was like, this is going to become a huge asset
0: class. That's exactly where I want to go next, which is, what is the investment case for farmland?
1: So the investment case for farmland is that it fits really well in almost any professionally-managed Diversified portfolio, and I am a firm believer that unless you want to spend a lot of time managing your own portfolio, you should leave it to the professionals. It's extremely complicated to manage investments, and things change daily, hourly. Um, and so, the way that really I think the professional investment industry thinks about investments is the kind of academic approach, the state of the art is uh, one: you should optimize for risk-reward, and then two, invest like no one goes about investing for the sake of investing. They want to meet their financial goals. So the p- financial portfolio should fit a variety of financial goals. Um, and so from that perspective, Farmland 1 has demonstrated historically compelling returns, um, 11 plus percent in the last 30 years, low volatility, which is a measure of risk, uh, 7% in the last 30 years, uncorrelated to most other asset classes, even real estate and since the pandemic, uh, which means well-diversified, Tremendous performance in times of inflation, which is now we're all scared of. (laughs) Uh, Tremendous performance in the the recession. In 2008, farmers was up 23%. It was flat in this recession when everything was down 30%. Compelling long-term tailwinds. Population is growing. Diet's are improving. People Mm -hmm. care about the environment, so regenerate, sustainable agriculture. And supply farming is shrinking. US alone lost 15 million acres from 2012 to 2017. So it's just a kind of checkmark, 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 uh, making it all a very compelling addition to almost any portfolio.
0: And, and we've talked a lot about productive or speculative assets in the alt space, and there's a spectrum of those types of assets. You'd consider farmland a productive asset, correct? Indeed, yes. And then how, how do you think about getting down to the asset level? which farms may perform better than other farms and why. I know on Farm Together, you have a number of, of different types of nut farms. And, and I just wonder, looking at, at the platform, like, is there a specific reason why? When you think about each single asset, how do you evaluate those different farm assets to know whether or not some farms are going to, yes, they may all be productive assets, but some will produce more than others, and then you will have be- better returns as an investor in certain farmland than you will in others?
1: Well, it starts with the macro looking at the market for the end product. So you, know, you mentioned nuts, we also have citruses, we have apples. Uh, so for example, almonds, um, premium snacking product, tremendous tailwinds, amazing marketing organization. So we have bullish long-term thesis on almonds. Same goes for citruses, for organic apples, especially the new varieties, things like that. Uh, other areas, like for example, dairy seem to have a lot of challenges both on the demand and supply side. So we kind of stay away from that for the time being. Um, so that's that's step 1 it's like really just saying which crops we we like two it's overlaying those crops with the expertise we have in house at the moment so again we're very strong in west coast in nuts in in apples in citruses um three it's looking at which of those crops the us has some sort of advantage in because you know you're investing in the commodity and so mm-hmm. is it almonds where us produces 80% of the global market and you know it's essentially the the market maker um things like that Uh, And then from there, you look at specific regions. We look at climate change, and then we start looking at, you know, West Coast water is very important, so we have tremendous expertise in water. Uh, The price that you're buying at, are you buying at a good price versus comparable? Is the right operator? Is it someone really experienced that we have a relationship with and know really well in the industry? Um, And then it's sort of, you know, building down smaller, smaller blocks to build financial models, to build, you know, triangulate cost analysis, uh, discounted cash flows, comparables to see if it's a good price so sort of standard you know institutional Discipline investment
0: process. Not, not to, uh, not to belittle the institutional investment process in any way, but I have to say, from hearing the different types of food that you that, that you have as the underlying crop assets, you're making me very hungry. Number one, and number two <laughs> is I think that a lot a lot of those foods are foods that I like. Uh, so I'm wondering if I should just create a farmland portfolio based on the food that I like to eat, and if and and that will then I'm, I'm then consuming I'm then consuming the, the, the type of uh, of farmland yields that, uh, that that I would hope would do well.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, look I love that idea. I mean uh I, I personally love hazelnuts. I go through like a bag a week like a squirrel. <laughs> and so whenever hazelnut deals come to the platform I'm always very excited and you know, the our partners occasionally send us little gifts that are like Oregon Hazelnuts they are just huge, beautiful, just delicious nuts and I'm always so happy to receive those. So that's definitely a factor. <laughs>
0: I know we, we, we were, kind of, we're kind of joking about that, but in the alt space in particular, there is very much a, an element of interest-based or movement-based investing, people investing into things because they yeah. feel an affinity to them. Do you think that that, I, I know I just joked about it, but do you think that that's a real element when it comes to farmland investing, and particularly this next crop of investors investing into farmland assets through a platform like Farm Together?
1: As a, a professional investor, I'd like to think about the whole world been dispassionate, you know, calculating AI that just invest into the best return. But no, it's a lot of our people they love specific nuts. Um, so we had recently a couple of pistachios that just sold out, it's because people, you know, love pistachios. They they want to support particular regions, or vice versa. You know, some people um, dislike particular regions. Um, you know, say it's for political reasons. <laughs> Not to get too much into that, which is really was really interesting for me to see. Um, or particular industries. So, the, you know, the the, the, the Oregon hazelnut industry is exploding um, and people really love kind of Oregon. They want to support their local economy. Um, more kind of globally uh, sustainable investing, uh, organic, regenerative investing is important to a lot of people. So, I think, look, I think it's great that people are kind of investing based on interest because it's sort of taking your money and making kind of shaping the world in the things you want to see and not just getting financial return but helping in particular cause of movement culture Uh, you know I I read your blog all the time and I think sort of to take that point broadly this is your interest in NFTs in interest in art like supporting your artists uh, a particular cultural moment and then the the day like culture is all that we're going to be left with once we hopefully finally enter this world of abundance and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I think you know that's a whole other topic i left maybe which can just chat about but in short yes on front together we absolutely see interest based
0: investing and and to take that a step further as well do, do you see that much of the interest in many of the farmland assets whether on your platform or in general in the industry tend to be more local investors who want to support the areas or regions in which they live in and want to see farms do well in their regions and maybe even not just not not just invest locally but then also buy and shop and eat
1: locally we have some of those. I would say it's still a small percentage. Um, we've seen indeed sort of local investors investing in the local geography. Uh, we've seen, I think, what we have seen was really great is a lot of farmers and people in the ag industry finally finding a way to actually invest in the industry they understand really well because the you know, average farm is a couple million dollars or more. And so for someone who doesn't have a couple million dollars laying around, uh, being able to put in, you know, ten, fifteen thousand into like a, a Farm, they understand it's great. We had some people who uh, literally said, "Oh, I know the operator, or I know the neighbors. I drove by your property. Like, seems you guys are doing a good job." Here's some tips, by the way, because I know you know the district really well. So that was really cool to see people actually feel uh, catered to. Um, You know, we oftentimes like, especially in sort of the the coastal city elites, right? Gloss over the heartlands, and uh, you know, for farmers, it's like people don't really understand them. And so it's really nice, I think, for the community and the ad community to be able to, like, one, bring the asset class to the mainstream, but be to be investing into their own industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point about being able to invest in your own industry and also the types of investors are, who are investing in this space and also where they're investing, right? Because I think as, as I was doing some reading on, on this for our, for our podcast, I came across some statistics. One is that Bill Gates is now the largest owner of farmland in the US. I think he owns 242,000 acres at this point. And I think that's a really good segue into 70% of farmland is expected to change hands within the next 20 years. So, what does that mean for the farmland space and who's going to end up investing in it? Is it, is it going to be People like you're saying, is it going to be larger institutions who may not have a connection or physical tie to that region, but are just looking at it as they might look at any other real estate investment?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question and you know, a, a trillion dollar question because yeah, that's how much you know. It's almost, literally, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, it's really hard to say. But just for context for your listeners, the reason for this change of ownership is not even a generational, but a tectonic shift that is driven by the aging of the farmer. Average age is approaching 60. Kids don't really, a lot of them don't want to farm. And so that land is going to end up in um, sort of someone else's hands. And so I think there's a lot of trends happening. And look, I don't have a crystal ball, but just to talk us through a couple of scenarios. One is, as in any real estate, um, when you end up operating in real estate professionally, you realize that you shouldn't actually own the building in which you do your business. You know, Nordstrom or H&M or a restaurant. Don't go and just like buy the building where they want to open a restaurant. They lease it. And so for the farmers, it's the same. Forty um, percent of land is rented already. I think that number will go up, and the reason for that is that for a farmer, they get to to spread the fixed asset base, they knowledge, they workers, they they labor, um, they um, equipment over a larger acreage, at a much more capital efficient a much more capital-efficient way than buying the land. You know, land is a safe, stable, long-term asset that should kind of be in the hands of those type of investors. That's why we call it capital markets.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so I think that's one. And so that, that lends itself well to an investor that has that very long-term horizon. Um, secondly, you know, I think when we say large institutions, um, oftentimes we kind of immediately, our mind goes to like the evil corporations or something. But really, we're talking about like, Pension funds that serve firefighters, that serve like teachers, like their teachers, retirees. It's like it's really the the you know the, the most of America. That's who the, those institutions are, the fidelities and things like that. Um, and so they've won. Uh, they are increasingly under pressure to have a very strong ESG mandate. I know mm-hmm. our teachers is and um, so in in a lot of ways uh, for them to let's say mistreat a farmer or not take care of a small piece of land they reputational stakes are much higher than an individual owner or perhaps, you know, like a small sort of private fund that might buy it. So I think it's actually going to end up being much better for for the land, for the environment, for the the local communities. And B, I think still there'll be way more farmers that will continue owning the land, Uh, but just the average size of the farm will increase. So the farmers we work with, you know, the ones that are staying when the kids coming in, um, they're just starting to operate large acreage. And so there is a bit of that, I think, unfortunately, that some of the smaller towns will go away because we just have fewer people there. Um, but on the other hand, I think the towns that will stay will get larger. And the remote working, even like this, you know, the pandemic what showed us, as well as the active development, might make farmers the new middle class job where you'll be sitting, you know, in your apartment in New York or Chicago or know San Francisco uh, or like whatnot, and farming, you know, a farm in Kansas. Because a lot of that will be done through remotely.
0: Do you think that a lot of these institutional investors, these pension funds or endowments, do you think they will have a connection or a tie to that farmland that they're investing in, or do you think they'll just be doing it for financial, purely financial reasons?
1: It definitely will be less connection than you know if it was an individual or even for farm together, where um, you know I think we uh, try to really bring additional information about what's happening with the land. We want to do like interviews with the farmers and do videos and, you know, drone flyovers, things like that. Um, But I think also, you know, to your point about this kind of, you know, just bringing a more human face to investments where it becomes more meaning filled, even the institutions have to catch on. They have their own constituencies and they have their own people working there that understand that uh, they're not just investing into like a piece of dirt that this is, Something that's really important to to U.S. to farmers. I mean, farmers have, I think, the highest rating of trust of any profession in the United States. I think I saw that Financial Times uh, research. So um, I hope that it won't be just, you know, a, a, a number in the financial statement, but something more. Definitely, when we, uh, if we ever get to invest in behalf of institutions, which is our plan, that it will be kind of a more meaningful-filled uh, management role that we'll take.
0: Yeah, it's an, it's a really interesting question because one of the things that I, I thought about as as I think about some of the evolution of ownership or investment into farmland is the potential parallels with the single family home space. So I believe that Blackstone is actually the largest owner of single family homes in the U.S. and they're they're the largest uh, rental rental owner. Effectively, do you think that we'll see farmland go the way of single family homes, where like? One large or a few large institutional investors end up owning the vast majority of this land, and then renting it out to farmers.
1: So I think we'll see institutions take a much larger stake, but the the space is so vast that I don't think we'll get there anytime soon. And also, I think like Blackstone might be a large owner, but it still probably would be individuals, as they combined own the majority. Mm-hmm. So it just Blackstone is is pretty big. I, look, I think. Right now, altogether, sort of the formalized ownership of farmland sort of from an investor perspective is two percent and ninety-eight percent is owned by families. So even if we have like another three, four, five, six percent, which is a huge number, uh, go to sort of investors in the next, you know, ten years, the majority will still be owned by individuals. So it's a, it's just a, a vast market that maybe in fifty years it'll be something different where it'll be kind of, you know, larger ones. Not anytime
0: soon. So. Well, it also sounds like Farm Together can bridge that gap in a way and enable maybe this combination of institutional investors, but also Farm Together as the intermediary for individual investors or high net worth investors to access that same farmland. And, and then you're kind of sitting in the middle between these large institutions and the families who may want to sell their farmland.
1: That's right, yeah. All uh, families who want to expand their business yep. or want to transform it because the um, the capital supply space in farming right now, is, it's very still rudimentary compared to real estate. There's only a few really capital options. And so a lot of times, you know, like transitioning to organic, organic, doing some sort of like expansion that isn't just buying the land uh, is a lot of use cases that we have seen.
0: Interesting. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that's a great segue into the platform mechanics. So when I think about alt alt investment platforms, I think about three three different building blocks to it. One is origination, two is distribution, and three is the data. So let's start with the kind of investment lifecycle. So you have to originate those assets. How do you yes. think about originating those assets? What's the process that goes into it? How do you pick which farmland to originate? How do you think about quality control? So, w- walk us through the origination side of, of Farm Together's
1: platform. And I think, look, that's where the secret sauce of Farm Together comes into play because at the end of the day, distribution, I think, um, long term will be a little bit like owned by centralized hubs like the Amazons so of investment, whether it's Fidelity or Robinhood. Um, but origination is where. It really comes into play. So in farmland, we have to remember, it's a very fragmented market. 70% of farmland is in farms less than $10 million in value. It's a very opaque market. There's no Bloomberg or Zillow for farmland. It is a market where, about anecdotally, because we don't have the data, <laughs> 50% of deals um, happen in this kind of handshake, word of mouth, relationship-driven approach. Um, and that's why we actually haven't seen the same explosion of the interest and capital deployed in the market versus, you know, crypto infrastructure, timber, real estate. Um, and that's where Farm Together is really playing. So origination is a, there's no one silver bullet. It is meticulous work. Uh, and a lot of it is tech that we'll talk about with, with brokers, with landowners, with farmers, relationship owners, the distribution uh, going to Farmers, for example, like Farmers Business Network, a big you know, um, um, player in the space. Or so like uh, it could be Stimult and Apple Grow. It could be John Deere. So mm-hmm. um, players like that. We don't have any relationship with John Deere, just to be clear, but as an example. And so all that goes into um, getting a diverse deep funnel of initial deals that can be sale of land, can be expansion, just really keeping our ear to the ground in a very comprehensive way. So in Q1, uh, through our engine, that's called Terra, we have looked and underwritten, meaning analyzed, a billion dollars worth of farmland, which has been record to date. And you know, our team is not big.
0: How? Sorry to interrupt, but how long does it take mm-hmm. to actually underwrite a farmland asset?
1: It used to be weeks. Now it's under 24 hours because we have automated a lot of that work, in particular geography and crops. Uh, sometimes it can be like inside 30 minutes. Uh, we, for example. One of the filters we have is water district, right? And we have analyzed different water districts. It's in this water district and it's this this water right that they have. No, it's too, too risky right now. Say no. But to answer your question, and kind of that segues me into the next step. Once the deal sort of goes through the initial filters, you know, you can imagine that there's this funnel where the, the holes get smaller and smaller and, you know, um, gets filtered out. Um, it's really a lot of on the ground work and due diligence, and it's working with third parties as well as more in-depth analysis of the, you know, all the relevant factors going in. And, you know, Michael, you asked me very timely about quality control. We're actually to that point. Um, due diligence is ongoing even as we go through syndication because it's just it's a very long process. Um, just yesterday, we actually announced that we had a $10 million deal that didn't, like at the eleventh hour, didn't pass the water due diligence, and so we had to say no to the deal. And we told this to our investors, and you know, the, the reception has been like so incredible. to much, so most people, one rolled over, they invested into the next deal that we had lined up, mm-hmm. and so many just like complimented us on having that discipline and integrity of underwriting. Because I was. You know, this deal was already up. I was really concerned what people will say, like, how come we didn't do due diligence before? Like, you should have known this up front. Uh, and you just can't know these things up front. Like, you have to go through all the steps and the motions, and you have to be disciplined and say no. So it was really amazing to see that support that uh, the investors gave us there.
0: I mean, that's fantastic to hear. And that also hits on such another key point with alt-investment platforms, which is how do you balance quality control – on your platform with origination, without diluting the quality of great assets that you have on your platform? Because there's only a finite number of great assets. And yet, part of the way many of these platforms make money is around uh, the number of assets they have on their platform. So, how do you think about that from from a quality control and distribution perspective?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. Because if you think about this logically, you have a waterfall of opportunities. And You start with the most attractive opportunities and then you kind of go down and down and down and so the question is at what point that down becomes too much and so one great thing about farmland is that overall it's a low volatility asset meaning that the variability of the asset itself is actually quite low Uh, most farmland at the right price with the right water is good farmland Uh, secondly you um, have different types of capital markets so a Farm that might be a fit for an individual investor might actually not be a fit at all for a large pension fund. Uh, two examples: We recently had a one of the largest deals, actually the largest deal ever in crowdfunding, closed on our platform, 22 million financed by over 300 individual investors. Um, that was a high risk, high return organic Apple deal development that might not be a fit at all for, let's say, a New York firefighter's pension plan that wants something that will be a 100-year, 3% cash yield uh, instrument. And so the way we balance it is that we have a process that matches the opportunities to the capital markets to make sure that actually the deal fits a particular player. And if we don't have that player, say, pension fund that we don't have right now on the other side of the marketplace, uh, we won't source those opportunities. So it's always matching matching
0: the two. You went to a place where I wanted to go next, which is the institutionalization of a platform like yours. So You mentioned that you mainly have retail and high net worth investors on the platform now, which is great, because you're bringing them access to this asset class that has traditionally been in the domain of the institutional investor. But how do you think about the institutionalization of your platform, whether it be individual investors, family offices, wealth managers, and then even large institutions? You mentioned pension funds, endowments, et cetera. So how do you think about that institutionalization over time?
1: Absolutely. So we start with an individual investor because from a regulatory perspective and in terms of finding those early eager adopters, that's the easiest way to start. Um, As we scale, uh, we plan to offer this more and more to institutional investors that require track record, require scale. They require uh, sufficient processes uh, in place that just are not You you can't set them up day one. It really takes a lot of capital and time is something that you can't buy with, no matter how much money you have. Um, And so I would say that already today we have uh, onboarded some small institutional investors, if you will. So this would be professional wealth managers that have an institutional framework, how they think about it. We have one that has committed to our private fund already. And we have a second one where we have essentially l o i stage of setting up a custom vehicle for professionally managed wealth management um, as we scale further, uh, we uh, plan to go to institutional investors both because of they scale but also because in terms of our our mission, which is democratize access to farmland investing, they' are actually the owners of the scale that we need, which is millions of investors, someone like fidelity or Uh, BlackRock or Franklin Templeton, which is our investor, they have access to millions of investors, and so it's much easier for us to offer them a product that they can distribute versus us having to individually go to every investor on the planet.
0: And do institutional investors do they look at you much like like they would look at a private fund and say, "I need to see three years of audited track record. I need to see certain types of returns. I need to see certain types of processes in order to kind of be able to." allocate capital to your platform, and, and what I'm really trying to get at here is, this in some ways is an investment platform, but I wonder if to certain types of investors, they actually just view this as a different perturbation of a fund.
1: Uh, on average, yes. The investors want to see all the things they would expect to see from a typical fund. For um, a lot of institutional investors, they couldn't care less how you actually look like inside. Uh, as any consumer, they are buying a product and they want to see a product that they are used to, which in often cases is a fund. Uh, so that three-year track record, those processes are important. Having said that, farmland is so new, so unique, so few options exist that we are able to have conversations and um, inroads that uh, if we were in any other sort of class, we would not have, but because we're in farmland and offering that unique product, um, people are willing to give us a pass on some things, like not yet having a three-year track record, not yet having you know enough assets under management, which um, is really great.
0: That, that's fantastic, and, and it sounds like over time, you will get to size and scale where many institutions may look at this like a fund. I mean, if we think about the evolution of some of these other platforms, whether it's the angelists of the world, the the forges of the world, where they've almost deconstructed funds in a sense and enabled investors, whether individuals or institutions, to invest on a asset level basis. It's really kind of changed the way that, that people think about investing in private markets. Is that really what you're, you're aiming to do here, in a sense, as well?
1: Uh, Michael, I love how you use the word deconstructed, because it's how I used to describe fund together for the longest time, where deconstructed and reconstructed uh, private fund. Um, that's, that's exactly what we're doing. It's um, looking at the whole investment process and saying, like, what is it that we're really are offering and how can we deconstruct and reconstruct using tech, using AI, using sort of the tools that 2021 has. Uh, and then saying let's let's not get caught up in nomenclature, fund, platform, single managed account, a separately managed account. Let's just ask ourselves as a tech company, which is a product driven company, how can we deliver a great investment product to different audiences. What does it have to look like in terms of that investment component, the financial component, and then the experience component, uh, and just go from there. So that's why um, you know I love sort of what Silicon Valley has brought to the table, which if I really dial it down to one thing, it's product obsession. Like that's, that's what Apple did and now the largest company. I think if we all adopt that mindset, then that's how we win. <laughs>
0: When you think about product obsession, is there any particular part of the value chain where you think you have to really win on product? Because sometimes in financial services, and we've seen this, that the product has to be good enough to use, but people aren't using these products to the same extent on a daily or monthly active usage basis as they would be with more traditional consumer products.
1: So it depends on who the audience is Uh, with institutions, and it's less about delightful ui like Robinhood, hood and much more about access to an attractive asset class in a package they're already used to so in this case product is access and coming back to what we talked about scalable access to retail investors and wealth managers the component of ease of use which is how easily can i invest how easy it is for me to get reporting uh, to do it in a flow that i'm used to that takes minimum amount of my time is quite important. Uh, a lot of RAs we talk to, they're not going to go on a platform like ours and create an account and upload every client individually. They need separate functionality and they have their flows. And what we're doing right now is building flows for them. And as you know, trite as it sounds, but making their jobs easy is actually, in a way, part of the product. And If they can, you know, they they see they see thousands of funds, right? And if there's a fund where they can click a button and deploy five million or they have to do months of paperwork and mailing things and checks, I mean guess which one they're gonna choose.
0: (laughs) Well, you you're also getting into another aspect of the platform that many of these alt investment platforms are thinking about, which is creating liquidity or secondary market mechanisms within your specific ecosystem or asset class. And I'd love to get to that topic here, because that is something that could drive more daily or monthly active usage on a platform like this, and where product experience does win. So, how do you think about creating liquidity in the farmland asset class? Is it something that you think investors should should do, or would they be better off just holding for the long term?
1: So, my personal preference would be that they hold it for the long term forever. But, of course, there's a lot of different players. Farmland overall is a long-term asset class, but liquidity, I think, is important and is almost a table stakes for all, for any investment today because uh, it's that much easier, easier to create. The way we think about liquidity in general, it's a function of transparency, because transparency means decreasing informational symmetry, uh, which then leads to more confident transactions. It is a function of a number of players with different views of the world, because that's also what part of liquidity is. And it is a function of players with different uh, investment criteria, different time horizons, different needs for cash flows, etc. And those things can change for an investor during their lifetime, right? And all that is what creates liquidity, because you need two sides of the marketplace to transact. And so part of liquidity is just volume and scale. And that just takes time. And then there's the, how do you enable this? So thankfully today, it's becoming easier and easier to get a broker-dealer license, to license an alternative trading system, to uh, to bring the instrument, the kind of the trading capability to different markets as well, right? Why do people list on New York Stock Exchange? Well, you know, it's just more volume there. How do we bring a farm suddenly to the whole world. So you can trade with, let's say, a Japanese investor. So that means uh, looking more closely at the crypto markets, where the crypto community is global, very quick, 24-7, right, which is, again, liquidity. So um, being able to put, let's say, a pool of farms also in a crypto token. So now you can trade it on Binance, uh, things like that. so we're thinking about all of that.
0: How do you think that the supply side, the farmers, or those who are managing farmland assets, feel about liquidity in this in this space?
1: You know, as in any industry, there's different views. I would say, overall, um, for the farmers that are um, looking to more and more professionalize and expand their business, they appreciate it. Because it brings them creative capital and cheaper capital. Um, a lot of our farms actually are a partnership with operators that um, came to us and they wanted more of that liquidity, more of that liquid capital to expand their operations. So that's, yeah, I think overall it's it's a positive view uh, of bringing liquidity. What we don't want to happen is people starting to day trade farms. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would be good for anyone. Again, it's a long-term asset. And so we Want to see long-term investors on the platform at the end of the day?
0: And if it's a long-term asset, where do you think it fits into an investor's portfolio? Is this a real estate slice of their portfolio, and they should take it out of the real estate part of their portfolio and their asset allocation? Is it out of fixed income? Is it out of alternative assets? How how do you think investors generally think about this, and how do you help them shape the narrative of in this kind of asset allocation pie, where they should think about taking out assets and putting it into farmland?
1: Yeah, so we view it in the same way that the alternative industry in general views it, which is that it should be taken out of the 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds, not out of real estate or other kind of alternatives, although farmland is a mix of some real estate, some bonds, some infrastructure, some timber. Uh, I think it should have its own bucket that is taken partially out of bonds, and that would be your lower risk, low return, uh, kind of cash flowing um, uh, component, and then partially out of sort of the the stocks, where some farms have uh, fairly attractive returns of target of 9 to 11%, which is higher than, you know, stocks on average is the expectation, um, where you can have sort of uh, Farms that are a capital appreciation play when there's a development component or kind of a more volatile but uh, higher return potential play, such as, again, organic apples or citrus farms, things like that.
0: And you've also mentioned that there's a big ESG component to farmland investing. Are many investors thinking about this as an impact investment in in that regard?
1: Many are we have a fairly active and vocal part of our investor community that only wants to invest into sustainable, organic ESG farms. Uh, And I don't know if you, Michael, or your listeners have recently seen this documentary called Kiss the Ground, which is just a really great summary of the tremendous impact that soil specifically and farming can do for the planet. So we have... Um, already signed up to a standard called Leading Harvest, which is a sustainability standard. It's not as strong as a regenerative standard, but it's still a great step forward. All our farms in three years um, will be under that standard. So we have committed to bringing farms there. And it doesn't matter which vehicle uh, it is, like it has to be there. And we are now building partnerships with players in the regenerative space to bring really... Impactful tech enabled regen farms that will not only build up the soil but also recapture carbon in the atmosphere. So, ESG is central to our mission. Uh, really, the way Farm Together is to set up is that uh, while a lot of our early farms are and still were and still are conventional, it's really just a way to get started to build the credibility with investment market. That's also where all the supply is to build up the knowledge base. But the longer we're around the more you will see us uh bringing up bringing on the platform the regenerative farms the sustainable farms the innovative farms we don't want to be someone who just facilitates a change of ownership in a random farm we want to add value we want to drive uh capital transformative uh Transformative capital to
0: farming? Well, one thing we've seen from the early days of the impact investing ecosystem was that they had standards and metrics and grading, right? So they had things like Gin had the iris metrics, you had B Corps, and companies would would stamp themselves as we are a B Corp, and then th- that would meet some level of impact standards for investors investing in those companies uh, or funds would say we're investing into B Corps. Is that kind of how you think about the evolution of investing into farmland as well where either there's some broader set of metrics by an independent body or you will create your own impact metrics that will say this is a farm together th- this is a farm together metric to show ESG standards
1: right now there is a national standard in United States created by the farmland investment industry which is very specific very measurable and audited by third parties I think that's a great start and overall i'm a big fan of independent completely separate non-profit uh, type standards Um, as we continue growing i think we're very ambitious very aggressive with our goals so if the if the industry can't catch up which i mean i'm sure they will but if they cannot we will absolutely have a farm together standard of what it means to be truly a regenerative farm because business as usual in agriculture Means that by 2050, we not only will not be able to feed all the people that we'll have on the planet, but we also will destroy the planet. Well, deforestation, soil degradation, like we cannot continue business as usual. Even if we put tremendous effort into it today, we're still barely kind of making it right now. We're not, we're already past that point, I think, of where we can keep the rising temperatures to 1.5 Celsius. I think it's going to be like two, three Celsius. Um, And we're going to see maybe a billion people uh, displaced because of water issues, climate issues. So um, I think last week, the scientific community changed the term from climate change to climate emergency. We're actually not going to be using the term climate change anymore. Now it's climate emergency. And so we're like in a catch up mode that needs to be all hands on deck all the time. So that's that's the mindset that we're operating in.
0: Interesting. And then, how do you think about the advent of things like vertical farming or other ways to do farming that may be more efficient, possibly more sustainable, and to your point, uh, may may get at uh, some of the the issues that we're facing in terms of do we have enough farmland? assets, etc., to feed many of these people in the world uh, kind of as time goes forward. So how do you think about that in terms of the impact on farmland as well?
1: Things like vertical farming are great, but they're not a scalable solution. I think they work really well for certain types of crops like leafy greens, herbs, for sort of the fancy restaurants around New York City where you can have you know, delivery same day. But nothing beats free energy from the sun. Uh, nothing beats the also the power of the soil to grow uh, in richness. Because the other issue we have is that today it takes more fertilizer to grow the same amount of corn as you did uh, 30 years ago. So you need way more fertilizer. Nothing beats the free water kind of falling from the skies. Um, and also nothing beats the resilient ecosystem, especially regenerative ecosystem that you have in a kind of open, vibrant farm. Uh, versus a closed in environment because imagine, you know, some bacteria, some microbe gets in and you have to control for all of that because it's a controlled environment. You're almost like suddenly running a clean room in a hospital, uh, which is expensive. And so while I'm a huge fan actually of vertical farming, I think it's a great solution for certain products, it's just not a scalable solution.
0: Interesting. So you think those two things will go hand in hand. Vertical farming will continue to happen, and there will certainly be enough farmland to finance through something like Farm
1: Together? Exactly. Yeah, we would just put it on our platform.
0: <laughs> oh, you could put ver- vertical farming solutions
1: on your platform as well. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? I mean, we, we want to finance uh, food production, right? Which is everything. <laughs> Uh, water as well. And so long-term uh, vertical farming, uh, pastureland, uh, livestock, sustainable fish farms, uh, algae, sorry, not algae, but like seaweed and uh, all those, you know, uh, insect farms, right? Those are exploring like the, the cricket farms, all those things, right? should be on a platform long-term.
0: I've actually had some cricket in when I was down in Mexico. It was uh, it actually tasted better than, than I would have expected. So... Um... Yeah, it's a little crunchy, but it's it's good, and, and yeah, I mean, wh- why not? Wh- why not finance all sorts of farms? I guess one final question there. You mentioned solar and <clears throat> leveraging the power of uh, our natural habitat as a way for farms to be more efficient. Do you ever think you'd get into financing things like solar panels on farms as a way for them to be more efficient in their businesses? And that we, we've obviously seen solar solar investment platforms, Mosaic, Wonder. Uh Mosaic's obviously more on the residential side now. Wonder's still on the commercial side. Um, but how do you think about the evolution of this platform, given the, the, the kind of horizontal nature and expansion of what you can do?
1: Yeah, great question. And uh, one of the co-founders of Mosaic is actually our advisor. So we know the space well. Farmland, by the nature of being sort of a geographical asset, if you will. A physical asset has those additional capabilities to facilitate solar and wind. And we actually just uh, were looking at a farm that had that wind optionality. So our underwriting will more and more incorporate the optionality for wind and solar on the farms. Um, And I think renewable energy has tremendous potential, of course, to uh, fight climate change climate emergency. I should correct myself. Uh, and so farms are a core part of that. Um, and then secondly, we're also looking right now at a pretty innovative water desalination solution using solar that will help replenish, remediate some of the fallowed land in California. So those things go very much hand in hand. I don't think we'll ever get into pure like wind together, solar together financing, but um, that will become a big part, I think, of some uh, location underwriting. Is this farm long-term a good location for wind as well for solar? Um, Yeah, those things go very much hand in hand. So um, excited to see how that plays out in the future.
0: Yeah, and Arthur is a great guy to have, have involved. Um, from the I remember, we we worked together at the early days of Mosaic. So, uh, very, very sharp guy and, and very passionate about solar and and creating a clean energy economy. Um, that's great. So, I always end this podcast by asking everyone what their favorite or most interesting alt investment is and why. I know you mentioned that you love <clears throat> you love nuts, so maybe maybe that's it. Uh, but I'd love to hear. From, from from you, what, what your favorite or most interesting alt investment is and why?
1: I think for me, I would have to say that personally, hazelnuts, because I just love eating them. And you know, to your point about what we talked earlier of investing into our personal interests as well and supporting through our investments of personal interests, um, I think the Oregon hazelnut industry has tremendous potential. We have a few deals there. And so um, that's what I personally really like. But of course, every deal on our platform is a <laughs> it's my favorite. Is
0: this truly a circular economy where the more hazelnuts you eat, the the better these farms that that perform that that are that are on your platform? These hazelnut
1: farms. I mean, given how many hazelnuts I eat, definitely, I think I personally <laughs> moved the needle.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, who knew that you could actually eat your way into a better investment? Um, <laughs> why, why not? I mean, if if it sounds like these farms end up doing better the more hazelnuts you eat, so maybe there is a correlation between personal interest and investing. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, Artem, th- thanks so much for coming on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at at Michael Sidgemore and at Alt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going